This is an APTA podcast. Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. I want to welcome listeners to this latest PTJ podcast. This is Alan Jetty, Editor-in-Chief of PTJ. And today I'm very pleased to have as my guest, Dr. Ndidi Amaka Matthews. She's from the Division of Biokinesiology and Physical Therapy at the Herman Ostro School of Dentistry at the University of Southern California. Dr. Matthews, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate this opportunity. Well, I'm pleased to have the uh, chance to talk to you about your point of view that you and your colleagues wrote. Uh, It's extremely timely and I think really important. And so I look forward to talking to you about it and kind of probing some of the things that struck me when I thought about uh, the themes that you were putting forth in the article. Let's start with a question that I had about the concept of systemic racism, because I'm, I'm not sure if everyone is familiar with that concept. You make the point in your article that overt interpersonal racism, although it still exists in uh, U.S. society, it's really not socially acceptable anymore. But systemic racism, you argue, persists and that it has devastating impacts on healthcare, equity, quality of life for people of color. And I think there's so much in the, the press today that uh, illustrates that. But for our listeners, talk a little bit about what you mean by the term systemic racism and how it differs from other forms of racism. Be happy to. Uh, before I do that, I just also want to acknowledge the other authors that were on this um, this paper um, who helped to build the thought process behind everything that came forward. So it would be I'd be remiss to not acknowledge that this is the work of not just my own but of um, several others. So how does systemic racism differ? from others, other forms. I, I think one of the things that we first have to do is, is ground ourselves in definitions. Um, within the article, we do um, have a table where we provide definitions of different uh, forms of racism and, um, and that we use the work of scholars in this area to um, develop those, the definitions that we chose to use. The definition that we use for systemic racism is the overarching system of racial bias across multiple institutions or society as a whole that produces or sustains racial inequities and perpetuates the idea of racial hierarchies. So this is different from other forms of racism in that it goes across multiple institutions or throughout society. So when we think about institutions in our society, um, uh, I'm sorry, uh, systems in our society, we might think about the healthcare system. We might think about the criminal justice system. We might think about land ownership or housing. And so all of these systems and how they're impacted by racism. And what I think is really, really important when we're talking about systemic racism, something that we need to keep in our, or, or be aware of is that systemic racism can be difficult to see without understanding the mechanisms that underlie those systems and, and allow for those um, inequities to continue. And that's why there's that contrast between the overt racism. I think as a society, we're really pretty able to see overt racism, uh, kind of intentional and obvious harmful attitudes or behaviors towards racial groups, but we're not so good at seeing this covert 
racism that is often found in systemic racism um, that results, in, at least within the healthcare, healthcare system, results in these huge disparities that we're seeing across multiple areas of healthcare, uh, maternal health, cardiovascular care, cerebral vascular disease, pain management, um, all of which has been really well documented by the Institute of Medicine. So. I just want to note for our listeners that if you want to read more about these uh, concepts and the differences between them, at least I found Kendi's book on how to become an anti-racist very helpful. And I had just finished reading it before receiving your point of view submission. So the timing could not have been better. Yeah. And I think for our author group, um, his book was very, very impactful for many of us. And I would highly recommend it to anybody who's interested in just learning more and really getting more comfortable with this, these terms and understanding how this is woven throughout our um, society and systems. Yeah. Well, let's talk about PT profession uh, specifically. You make a really important point, which I wasn't aware of. And that is, there's been really no meaningful improvement in the representation of people of color in our profession over the past 20 plus years. And you, you note the statistics back in 2000, black people accounted for just over two, uh, 3% of enrolled students in our profession. And in 2018, probably the most recent data available, it was only 3.6%. So very little progress. So talk to our listeners a little bit about what ways have we as a profession fallen short in not being able to make improvements? Uh, sure. I think um, one of the things that limits us or that has limited us over these past 20 years and prior to that time is that PT professional organizations really haven't made this a priority. Um, this idea that, that, that this is a, a, a problem that we really need to look at and address are barely mentioned in strategic plans. Um, only in the past 16 months since the um, racial reckoning that has been going on in our nation, as well as in other areas of the world, that uh, it's only been in these last 16 months or so that this it seems like it's been taken a bit more seriously um, by uh, professional organizations within physical therapy. Um, an example of this, um, like in the prior to the last 16 months, the way that it seems that our professional organizations have addressed this, at least for the APTA, has been the development of the um, of minority scholarships. Um, that are given out at an award ceremony each year. And um, with a problem that is this stubborn, surely, um, and, and, and so large and so stubborn, surely um, some scholarships are not going to be the answer, um, a singular answer to a problem like this. You know, we've collected this data um, that tells us that the representation isn't acceptable, but we, the strategy to address that, um, we, we haven't addressed that in the way that we've been trained to with respect to science. When we see a problem, how do we address that? So like um, analyzing our pipeline into the PT profession, um, we might ask ourselves, uh, where are people missing? And why are they missing there? And where are we losing people? And why are we losing people? 
there? Um, what opportunities do we have to change these numbers? And I just think the way that we, in a, in a, in a scientific way, might address other problems, we aren't using that, those same type of um, ways to look at this problem and to really delve into the complex answers that will likely be able to um, address these complex problems. Uh, you know, that's also reflected in the title of your piece, because you talk about going beyond a statement of support. We certainly have been there mm -hmm. uh, throughout my entire career. People have talked about the need to address this problem. And then the rest of your title focuses on changing the culture. Mm -hmm. which I think it requires specific action. Absolutely. I think we are, um, as a society, we'll, we will put out statements and, um, you know, and, and, and to share how we feel about things. But going beyond that is where we really need to go to address the policies and systems that allow racism to continue to infect our social structures is what needs to happen. But that's not going to happen just simply with a statement. You have to move beyond that and start to act. So... In, in your piece, you talk about a sense of denial in our field uh, among white professionals who don't see themselves as racist. And you make the argument that we need to go um, beyond not being a racist to really strive to be an anti-racist. I want to talk uh, in a couple ways about that theme. Uh, one of the concerns that strikes me uh, as someone who is sensitive to the polarization going on in our society today, is there, in your view, a risk of backlash by focusing on terminology like racism instead of some other terminology to address this problem? Or do you think that's just playing into the uh, ongoing sense of denial? Yeah, the, the latter. I definitely think that it is playing into that ongoing sense of denial. I, I, I believe, I don't believe that using a different term is really the solution here. Racism is racism. Racism is a very useful and descriptive term that helps us to, to identify beliefs and attitudes and behaviors and actions and policies or systems that we need to work to improve to have equity across people. Um, and I think we need to get comfortable with the idea of talking about racism and its devastating impacts. Not to say that we have to be comfortable talking about racism, but we have to be comfortable with the idea and, and moving forward and talking about it. And when I'm talking about racism with another individual, it's not that it feels totally comfortable to me, but I'm comfortable with the fact that this is something that I need to do. And so therefore I can move forward, right? Um, and um, I, I think that calling racism by another name um, will only take us a step away from the important conversations that really we've been avoiding having for hundreds of years. And um, you mentioned Dr. Kendi's book earlier. He talks quite a bit about this in his own book and um, the, how the term racist has been used in past to um, add to somebody's identity, right? So like I, I identify as a, as, a, 
as a black woman. And I presume as I go through my, my life, I will always identify as a black woman. So when, and, and, and to put a label like racist on somebody, it's like once they have that label, it's like they have to carry it with them through life. And that is, that's a challenge that that's something that's problematic about the terminology because we use it to label a person as opposed to using it to label a label behaviors or actions or policies. Um, and I agree with Dr. Kendi in that if we use the term to label the policies, actions, behaviors, et cetera, then it gives the opportunity for the person who might be upholding that racist ideology or racial inequity um, to say, hmm, is this in fact what I'm doing? Is, is my behavior, is my action, is my attitude upholding those um, racist beliefs or racist ideologies? Okay, then I have a choice to make a change to that. But if that person is upholding things and instead, instead of calling out the actions that they're doing, instead we call out the person, now their only option is to say, well, I'm not a racist. And to, to move away from the actions that they're doing that do uphold racist ideologies. So, um, so it's not that we need to stop using the terms racism and racist, because I think they're very informative and very useful for us. But instead that we should just use those terms to look at and describe the actions, beliefs, behaviors, policies, words, and not people themselves. Yeah, I think you've made a really important uh, distinction. One of the things I liked about your piece was that you talked um, very directly about some of the actions that you've begun taking at USC to try to address um, the issue of structural racism or institutional racism. Could you talk a little bit for our listeners about some of the steps that you've taken? I'd love to. Thank you for the opportunity to do that. I think the first step that we took at USC, which I think is the most important step, is that we began with listening. And this started very shortly after the murder of George Floyd, where we had a community conversation where we listened to our community. It was primarily Black students, faculty, and staff who were sharing their lived experiences and that opportunity where over about 230 people were there listening from our community, that opportunity to hear about lived experiences that many people had not had themselves um, was really eye-opening for our community. So I think listening was the first and most important step. Um, and, and as such, we've actually placed that into our main table in the article of steps that other people can take as the very first step um, is to engage in deep and humble listening. Um, and we're continuing to listen too within USC through bias reports that we've put made available to faculty, staff and students so that we can continue to grow knowing that listening is not a one single time point, but continues on um, through this process. So um, we started out with listening and we are still listening to people within our community um, so that we can understand where, um, where we can do better and where we can support our community. Um, in addition to that, for us, um, another step that we've taken to move towards equity and anti-racism is the support of our students and the support of our faculty. 
a lot of people tend to focus when they think about equity, diversity, inclusion, or anti-racism about, okay, let's get the people here and diversify our cohorts, which is definitely something that we're doing as well in terms of admissions and recruitment. But we also have to create the community that actually exists within our programs, within our division. And so supporting students is really important. Um, We have developed affinity groups for students to help retain support and add to the mental health of students while they're in our program. We have we have several um, student affinity groups, um, but from a race and um, for from race and ethnicity, there's a Black student affinity group, Latinx student affinity group, Asian Pacific, Middle Eastern affinity group. There's also international students. So providing space and community for students is hugely important, I think. So that's one simple way that we've been doing that with respect to supporting our faculty. You can imagine that in this decision to move forward towards anti-racism, that takes, I mean, being around academia for some time, this, this is not part of the typical language and what's been happening in academia. So a lot of faculty needed a lot of support to understand how to communicate this, how to, how to move through, the, how to think about their work and what adding this lens means. So there's been several growth opportunities that we've created for faculty, faculty and staff, I should say. We have an Exploring Anti-Racism workshop. It's a six-week workshop that's actually run by faculty within our division that utilizes the work of um, Black, Indigenous, people of color, um, scholars uh, who um, provide work that we can then reflect on. Um, we have other an uh, accountability group that meets um, monthly faculty and staff to talk about inclusion, diversity, equity, and anti-racism as well. Um, we have a book club that looks over journals and articles. We've got, we have regularly occurring speaker series, and there's, of course, several um, development opportunities from the university. But that growth of faculty really was necessary. It was really necessary for us as a faculty and staff to engage in conversations, a conversation, hard conversations, difficult conversations that really were not happening otherwise, because it's not part of our, of our nature or culture, not only within our university, but as a nation to be discussing these types of things. Um, Another piece that we've done that I, that um, I think was really helpful too, um, was shifting our merit review to include efforts towards equity, diversity, inclusion, and anti-racism, to not just be limited to scholarship service and, and, um, and teaching uh, student-centered activities, but to also include equity, diversity, inclusion, and anti-racism within our faculty assessment. Um, uh, you know, we, you, you assess what's important. And if anti-racism and equity, diversity, and inclusion was important, then we needed to be assessing that as well. So adding that within our merit review was a, a big part. Those are very helpful illustrations of how you've been grappling with this uh, in your own institution. Let's shift the focus to the professional organizations, if we could. You talk some about this in your piece, but if you could share with listeners some of the specific actions that you think our professional organizations should be taking to move toward becoming truly anti-racist. 
yes, the point of our article is to move towards this table that is intended to prompt reflection and inspire action at not only the, uh, as you said, the professional level, but also at the organizational level and at the individual level, because I think we have work to do all across. And this table is really a starting point for boldly moving towards the transforming us to be more anti-racist. It's not meant to be exhaustive of everything that we should be doing, but just simply a starting point. The first thing that is in the table, which I mentioned before, is this idea of engaging in deep and humble listening, because we need to look to understand the experience of others and the experience of others that might be countercultural to what we think that everybody is experiencing. We also need to educate ourselves and educating ourselves requires us, um, whether that's related to physical therapy or related to racism, it really requires us to put ourselves to the side for a moment, to be open to something that is new, right? So educating ourselves is going to be um, hugely important. And at times it may not be comfortable, but it's important. We talk about analyzing disaggregated demographic data. And the reason behind that is sometimes we can be motivated to do things and to change because inherently we know that it is the right thing to do, right? And sometimes that's enough, but when it's not, numbers don't lie. And so looking at disaggregated date, demographic data across the things for um, one might look into their, their programs or into their school or even looking at grades or patient outcomes within clinical work um, can be helpful to get a better understanding of, of how one might be acting in a anti-racist or potentially in a racist way as well. Understanding how we look at, another point that we put was uh, scrutinizing ourselves or our curricular programs for deficit-minded views of minoritized or historically minoritized populations is another big piece um, because we've really, we, we've, we've all been, myself included, have been um, raised in a, in a culture where systemic racism exists. And so therefore, we can all have deficit-minded views about these historically marginalized populations. Um, even people who are from those historically marginalized populations can have those same views as well. So um, kind of looking to try to understand how did one come to feel a certain way. So I think these are all good starting points to thinking about how we move forward. There's more information there in the tables, but I'll leave that to the readers to go back to, to take a look at that. That just gives some opportunities for people to think about how they can begin considering this within the work that they do. My last question, do you see any risks in trying to change the cultural norms in our profession with regard to equity, diversity, and inclusion? There's always risk in doing something that's different, right? There's always risk. And I think those risks come to the fact that individuals will have to step forward in order to make these changes, in order to actively oppose what has been regarded as generally okay or just the way things work within our healthcare system. And I think that when people step forward, there is the potential for them to feel isolated in taking those risks. That's when taking the risks starts to feel too uncomfortable for somebody to bear when feeling isolated. 
it's easier for us to step forward and challenge a system when we feel as if we're doing this in community as opposed to as a, a single individual. And this is why this need for community to move forward, to move things forward, this is why it's so important that professional organizations like the APTA and ACAPT and others, that they've committed themselves to anti-racism. That's why this is so important. It, it, and it's a re- it is really a very, very good start, but people still need to feel supported within the institutions where they work. And the critical anti-racism work um, that's happening now within DPT programs and physical therapy clinics is very, very important. That's why we wrote this article to continue to encourage programs to, if they haven't yet already, to commit to anti-racism, to begin going along that path. But the APTA, which wields more power than any one person or any one school or any one clinic, we need the APTA to be in full support and push for changes, um, whether that be accreditation standards or curricular requirements or continuing education training or whatever is deemed to be what will help to push the profession forward. But we need to push for these changes across all areas within the profession to go beyond this making a statement of support and move into action. Well, I do think your timing is um, impeccable, which is why I was really pleased to see it. And I really appreciate you and your colleagues' efforts in writing it. And I want to encourage our listeners to take a look at the article in PTJ. And I thank you for taking the time today to talk about it. Thank you. And thank you for the opportunity. I really greatly appreciate this. This is an APTA podcast.